Good evening, everyone. Oi, oi, oi. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be here. It's good to hear what God has done this past week. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for us to come around God's Word. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, I must start again uh, by actually apologizing because tonight I'm going to be a little bit self-indulgent. And what I mean by that is I'm going to preach on a topic that I absolutely love to think about and love to reflect upon. It's a, a topic that uh, the Puritans often wrote on, and so even tonight you're going to have to bear with some Puritan quotes. Sorry to some of you. And this is unfortunate doctrine and a topic that is, uh, has fallen out of favor today. And I would argue we are poorer for it. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the covenant of grace. I would suggest to you every Christian should know and think on and rejoice in the covenant of grace. Why? Because as I've titled this evening's message, it is a sweet cordial for a drooping soul. I must admit that's not my title. Uh, in 1692, uh, one of our Puritan and Baptist forefathers, Benjamin Keach, preached a sermon with that title, and in that sermon he makes this point, uh, that the covenant of grace is the fountain of our salvation, of our hope, our desires, our consolation in life and death, and therefore we should treasure this doctrine, and I trust this will be something that we do this evening. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage for the sake of time, but I just want to draw your attention to verse 1, and I will be reading uh, throughout some of the verses. Look at verse 1. This is God's word. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever been despondent and despaired at shattered hopes? Have you ever been disgraced by your own failures and your own shortcomings in your walk with God? Have you ever been distressed because you're bombarded with affliction after affliction? Have you ever felt defeated because it seems nothing seems to work out? It's one hardship after another. Well, if that's you this evening, know this. You are in very, very good company because it's to such people that this chapter is written to. You see that in the, the images being used of the people in the section. On the one hand, they are likened to a wife in verse 1 to 8. They're likened to a despondent wife who was fruitless, a, a disgraced wife who was faithless, verse 5 to 8. Yet on the other hand, these people are likened to a city, verse 11 to 17, a distressed city that was worthless and a defeated city that was defenseless. See, this passage was written for a despondent people who had their hopes shattered, a disgraced people who, who were ashamed of their sinful shortcomings. A distressed people who are bombarded again and again by hardship. A defeated people overcome by their enemies. See, if this is you, 
you are in very good company. But not only are you in good company, there is good news for you because the whole point of this passage is that God draws near to such people. God draws near to them to to bring them out of their trials. He he turns them from despair to joy. Look at verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. But not just that, he he turns them from disgrace to honor. Look at verse 5. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will will be remembered no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And not just that, he, he turns them from disgrace to peace. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles a gate, your gate of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And if that's not enough, he turns their defeat to victory. Look at verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. See, this is what God does for such a despondent, disgraced, distressed people. And realize, dear friends, this is what our God can do for you. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God draw near to to such a people? Well, we're given the answer in verse 9 to 8, 9 to 10. So it says there, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Did you see it? There is the sweet cordial for a drooping soul. There is what theologians call the the covenant of grace, that God swears to draw near to a people. See, we must remember that God is the blessed of all beings. He is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. He is perfect in in being, in wisdom, in power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. He is the source of all comfort and joy and peace and blessing. But knowing all of that about God won't do you any good until you know that this God is for you. Until you know that this God cares for you. Until you know that He commits to you and covenants with you. 
And beloved, that's exactly what the covenant of grace does. It declares that the glorious and great God who is eternally blessed is for His people because He enters into a covenant agreement for their good. He enters into an oath-bound promise to, to save and restore. He enters into a promise oath, a relationship of love and peace with sinners like you and me. Beloved, that's what the covenant of grace is. God's covenant agreement and God's oath-bound contract wherein He enters into relationship with sinners and He promises Himself, He promises to seek their good. Isn't that what we see in this chapter? God entering into relationship with sinners, covenanting Himself for their good. I realize this covenant is, is first revealed to us in Genesis 3.15. We know it well. I'll put enmity, God says, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet, his heel. That is to say, God himself will, will conquer sin and Satan. He will do so by being separation between sin and man, which became infused in the fall. And God, your promises and covenants himself to overcome sin, to conquer Satan, to save man. And, and isn't this the beautiful covenant that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect son of Eve, who not only overcomes Satan in the garden, but on that tree of Calvary, he conquers our sin and our shame, and he procures for us with His precious blood, our salvation. See, the covenant of grace is at the foundation of the gospel. In fact, that's how our, our Baptist forefathers understood it. If I can uh, quote with you uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says this, The distinct distance between God and the creature is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he was pleased to express by the way of covenant. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Beloved, let me suggest to you the covenant of grace, which is at the heart of the gospel, is a truth that ought to lead us to delight in our God. It's a truth that ought to lead our hearts to rejoice in our God. Uh, the Puritan Obadiah Sedgwick uh, said it this way, the covenant of grace, wherein God proclaims all His goodness to us is the foundation of all our lives, our comforts, our hopes, and our happiness. In fact, you know how Spurgeon spoke on the covenant of grace. He said this, It is the very soul and essence of all poetry, and in sitting down and meditating upon it, I do confess, my spirit has, has sometimes been ravished with delight. Dear friends, if these saints of old were in awe of God because of this covenant, if these saints were ravished with delight in this God, then surely we should meditate 
upon the God who commits himself in this covenant. God in the covenant of grace turns our despair into singing. He turns our disgrace into honor, our distress into peace. He turns the most bitter defeat into victory. Why? Because the God of the covenant of grace gives himself. And so this evening as we reflect upon this covenant, uh, particularly in verse 10, I want you to see three words that need to be associated with this covenant. Three words that will make this covenant precious in your eyes. Uh, The first word is this, compassion. This covenant is, is marked and moved by compassion. Look at verse 10 again. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Uh, Drop a bit bit earlier to verse 7. He says, therefore, a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, to really understand the the beauty and the wonder of this compassion of God, let me remind you what the Bible says about you and me. Here's a bit of uh, Biblical Anthropology 101. According to the Bible, our hearts are continually sinful, Genesis 6.5. Our mind is darkened by sin, Ephesians 4.18. Our soul has been made sick with sin, Psalm 41.4. Our very spirit has been polluted by sin. And there's more. Our very will, the Bible says, has been enslaved by sin, John 8, 3, 4. Our conscience defiled by sin, Titus 1, 15. Our tongues are worlds of sin, James 3, 6. And our feet run continually after sin, Isaiah 59, 7. We are not just a people who sin, no. We are by nature sinners, and as such, we deserve nothing from God. Listen to Brooks. There was nothing in fallen man to invite God to enter into covenant with him. In fact, there was in fallen man everything that might provoke God to abandon man, to abhor him, and to revenge himself upon man. Realize none of us deserve any relationship with God. None of us deserve to be in covenant with him. Yet despite our sin. He enters into relationship with sinners. Why? Because of his compassion. Uh, That word sometimes is translated as mercy or pity. It means God shows favor when he actually should show judgment. Or said differently, it, it is describing grace. That's why this is a covenant of grace. Dear friends, as you think on this, Seeing God's compassion and grace, should this not lead you to astonishment? Should this not lead you to utter amazement and praise? God could have left you in your sin. God could have discarded you. He could have told you, hey, save yourself. You could have given up, yet he doesn't. Now he shows compassion. He enters into a covenant. So that's the first word you need to see 
about this covenant. It is marked by compassion. Second word is this. That's the word commitment. This covenant is marked by commitment. See, God is committed to His people in this covenant so much so that nothing can remove His steadfast love from us. In verse 9, the, the covenant of grace is compared to the Noah covenant. Listen, look at what it says. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I saw that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. In other words, just as God had committed himself to not judge the world with water again, so to God has committed himself to love his people and keep covenant. I've read it three times now. Let me read it again. Verse 10. For, my, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. That's an interesting illustration, an interesting comparison, don't you think? Isaiah compares God's covenant with the mountains. See, see, the mountains, from our perspective, seem almost immovable. They seem permanent. Yet the mountains pale in comparison to the secure, steadfast, immovable promises of God. See, there are a picture of God's commitment in this, in this covenant. The mountains would sooner fall away into the sea than God turn back on His commitment. Uh, that's why in Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 61 and Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 37, the covenant of grace is called the everlasting covenant. It's the everlasting, eternal covenant because God commits himself to not change his mind, to, to not forsake his promises, to not revoke his commitment. Now, there are two aspects of God's commitment that ensure that this is an everlasting covenant. Firstly, God's commitment is based upon who he is. See, the God who makes this covenant, the God who draws near, commits himself. He, he's not a God who is a pretender. He's not a God who fails and falls short. No, he's the sovereign almighty of the earth, and he powerfully fulfills his plans. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and it will bring, and will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. See, God is the sovereign, almighty God of this world, and therefore He alone, because of who He is, is able to keep this covenant. But, but God's commitment is, is based on also what He's done. Uh, remember, in a covenant, there is there's a twofold responsibility. Two parties are involved. Each party is responsible to keep the commitments, the obligation of this covenant. Well, guess what? Even here, with this covenant with God, we are the weak party. 
We are the, the ones who repeatedly break covenant. We are the ones who, who are wayward sinners who, who fail to obey God again and again. It unlike God, we cannot keep our end. See, here's the amazing thing of, of this covenant. Unlike the covenants with Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, God intervenes here and takes the responsibility, our responsibility on himself. God is so committed to this relationship that he gives himself and enables us to keep covenant. I think of God's commitment in this covenant in the way he gives his son. Jesus is sent to be our, uh, our covenant head. He is sent to be our substitute to pay for our sins. Unlike us, he was obedient. And for us, he, he pays for our disobedience. He's the covenant head who lives righteously for us as our covenant keeper. And he gives his blood to forgive us as covenant breakers. In fact, just look at the passage before this chapter, the famous Isaiah 53. Look at verse 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on upon him the iniquity of us all. See, God is so committed to his people. He gives his eternally begotten son as our mediator. But there's even more. He not only gives his eternal son, he, he gives his eternal spirit. The Spirit is sent to, to indwell us, to sanctify us, to will and to work within us according to God's law. See, we cannot in and of ourselves keep covenant with God, yet, yet God in His grace has given us His Spirit to enable us to walk. I consider Ezekiel 36.25, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Dear friend, I hope you get the point. All that is needed for this covenant is provided by God. Despite our weakness, despite our waywardness, he is committed. Isn't it a beautiful picture there in verse 5 and 6 that God is likened to a faithful husband? Look at verse 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God. Despite his wife being weak and wayward, God is committed. He is faithful in this covenant. And dear Christian, dear beloved, the fact that this God is so faithful to sinners like us should motivate us 
to be committed to Him? Can we see God being so faithful in this covenant and we be unwilling to give ourselves to Him? Can we really see how He exerts His power to keep our responsibility yet be uncommitted to Him? Can we see the great sacrifice of His Son for us as our covenant head and yet be unwilling to to give ourselves to Him and serve Him? See, if He has loved us with steadfast, committed love, then surely this should motivate deeper love on our part. Surely this should fuel greater commitment. Listen to Spurgeon again. Nothing binds me to my Lord like a strong belief in His changeless love. Dear friend, can you say that this evening? Nothing binds you to your God like the idea that He loves you. That His steadfast love is set upon you. Is the knowledge of God's love binding you closer to Him? So that's the second word in this covenant, commitment. The third word is this, comfort. Uh, This is a covenant filled with comfort. This is one of the central concerns of this covenant. This is why God even reveals it. He is revealing it to those who are tossed and afflicted. Look at verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Remember, God is supremely concerned for the comfort of His people. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord. Isaiah 51, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. And how does he comfort his people? Isaiah 52, 9 to 10 tells us, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the, all, before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Tell me, how has the ends of the earth seen the salvation of God? How have the nations come to see how God redeems a people? In and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the new covenant. See, this is is how God comforts His people. He, He redeems them. And not just that, uh, listen, listen to a few of the comforts he gives in this covenant. In this covenant, there's the comfort of steadfast love. I've referred to it already. What a comfort to know that despite our failings, our shortcomings, God's promise in verse 10 is that he does not remove his love, that chesed, covenant, loyal love. It should make us think of what Paul says in Romans Eight thirty-seven. he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
Let me suggest you this should change the way we see our trials. Uh, Richard Sibbs illustrated this way. He said, measure not God's love and favor by your feelings. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest day. The difference is not in the sun, but in the clouds which hinder light of the sun. Beloved, what a comfort to know that despite the dark clouds of this tumultuous world, despite perhaps the fact that your soul is overcast, the love of God is still steadfast and unremoved from His people. Secondly, there is comfort in God's perfect peace. Again, verse 10, the covenant of grace is described as the the covenant of peace. Why? Because it's only in this covenant that we can come to know the shalom of God, that we can come to have true wholeness, true rest, true spiritual prosperity. And how is this perfect peace ours? It's only in the Prince of Peace. In this covenant, Christ makes Peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20. In this covenant, Christ guides our feet on the way of peace, Luke 1.79. Christ is the Lord of peace who gives peace at all times, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. And Christ rules our hearts with peace, Colossians 3.15. Ultimately, Christ guards our hearts with the very peace of God, Philippians 4, 7. See, in this covenant and only in this covenant do we come to know the peace of God in Christ that surpasses not just all understanding, but outweighs every hardship. Again, uh, Brooks said it this way, this covenant is styled a, a covenant of peace because it breeds, settles, quiets, and establishes our heart in perfect peace. It stills all fears and doubt and the worrying thoughts of the heart. I hope you get the point. I'm belaboring a little bit. In the covenant of grace, there is abundant comfort. There is comfort in God's steadfast love and perfect peace. I wish I could quote all of him. Obazias Cedric wrote the treat the 700 plus pages on the covenant of grace, and he mentions some other comforts. He says, if this God is your God in this covenant, then all of God's love and all of God's plans are set on you. All of God's sure and unbreakable promises are yours. All of God's attributes and all of His good is engaged for you. All of Jesus' offices as prophet, priest, and king works for you. All of the graces and guidance and refreshments and the joys of the Spirit are yours. See, if God is your God in this covenant, the blessed triune God is yours. Make no mistake about it, this life is full of trouble, but take heart, this covenant is full of comfort because it's full of God. It's God Himself giving Himself to His people. And so as I conclude, hopefully we've come to see something of the, the wonder of, of God in this covenant. In the covenant of grace, the great and glorious God who enters into a covenant agreement and an oath-bound contract, He graciously enters into this and gives us Himself. 
in and through His Son and His Spirit. See, see the covenant is moved by God's compassion. Despite our sin, He still enters into it. He, it is marked by His commitment. Despite our failures, He remains faithful. And it magnifies all His comforts. Despite our trials, He blesses His people abundantly. Dear Christian, what a blessing it is to have God as your God in this covenant. The question is, however, do you have any part in this covenant? Every single one of us has to ask this question. Do you have a stake in this? Are you a member of the covenant of grace? Is God your God in this covenant? Or perhaps I need to ask it this way. How can you enter into this covenant? How can you take hold of, of God's compassion and His commitment and His comfort? Well, the only answer is faith. There's one condition attached to that is faith in God. Where do I get that from? The next chapter, Isaiah 55. After declaring God's commitment in Isaiah 54, God calls upon His people in chapter 55 to come to Him, to, to rest in Him, to have faith in Him. Look at Isaiah 55 verse 1 onwards. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come into the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Verse 6, seek the Lord, therefore, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon See, to enter into this covenant relationship with God, you need to turn to this God. You need to turn away from this world and you trust in Him. You need to rely upon Him as that only portion that you have. For the unbeliever here this evening, know this. Outside of this covenant, there is only misery. There is no God, no hope, no joy, Outside of this covenant, there is only your failures and your self-attempts to make yourself right. But see, if you break covenant with this world and your sin, if you seek the head of this covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith, then there is a way out of your misery. There is a way to know the God who draws near and who gives himself. But for the believer here this evening, rejoice in this. If you have faith in Christ, you belong to this covenant. The God who is, is your God. And so therefore, when you find yourself in despair, remember the joy that is evident in this covenant. When you find yourself again disgraced by your many failures and your shortcomings, remember that in this covenant, God honors His people. 
when you find yourself in distress again because hardships overwhelm you, they're like a tidal wave that drown you, remember the peace that you have with God in this covenant. And when you're defeated again, remember the victory belongs to our God. And so dear church, rejoice in, meditate upon, praise God for the sweet cordial of your soul, the covenant of grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word says that you are the eternally blessed God. You are the eternal God who dwells in unapproachable light. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are invisible and immortal. You are the one who deserves all praise and honor and dominion. You're the God whose steadfast love endures forever. And we pray this evening that we would believe all these truths. That we would know that you indeed are a great, glorious God, but also a gracious God. Who draws near to the weak and the wayward, who uplifts the feeble and the fainting, who carries and sustains those who have just run out of energy. And so we pray, dear Lord, that even this evening we would take to heart all these promises, this covenant that you have made, that you have kept, that you are fulfilling. Help us to rest in it, to rejoice therein and rejoice in you. We pray this for, for all of us in our different situations. Some are grieving, some are troubled, some are tired. We pray to you, Lord, that you would meet them even this evening through these promises, through this passage, through this covenant. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.